Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing. inclusive that we can welcome these people that have special needs in is how do we incorporate their strengths help them within things that they need help with and have the communities enriched by their presence within it episode four insight with the lot personal experience parenting teaching and advocacy part one tal spinrad is a career jewish educator an advocate for change with over three decades of experience working within all aspects of the Jewish community. Combining the passion of Ezekiel with the humor of Mel Brooks, Tal uses both modern and traditional narratives to engage and reveal insights. Tal is a gifted storyteller, a passionate advocate. Also, he's hilarious. Hey, hey, Anna, how are you going? Hey, Jordan. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. I'm doing pretty well. Yourself? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I stopped lying Yeah, as I got older, you know. Sometimes I'm great, sometimes I'm eh. People yeah, don't want to no. know too much. I'm okay. I've got three kids, there's homeschooling, it's not been the best, but... You know what? I'm glad to be sitting here with you. So that's cool. <laughs> Thank you. No, oh, look, I feel I feel that. I mean, it's definitely been a bit of a fine few mm-hmm. weeks. Um, I, I boosted my fine to a good today just because it's the weekend, the sun's shining. Um, but it definitely is a you know a difficult time for for most Melburnians, and particularly with uh, you know the uh, the energy in your family. I'm sure it's been pretty tough cooped up. Melbourne is bringing the weather. I'm going to say that. That's really, there's some gift there from someone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I am thrilled, um, thrilled to be able to introduce our episode for today because it is with a absolute friend uh, and mentor and inspiring individual in my life, Tal Spinrad. I loved this man. Remember when I first met him was when you were running a training session And he was talking, you had a a group of young people, you had invited him to talk about um, his experience and also his personal experience of of living with autism. But I was, my jaw was on the floor from the minute he started. I was like, more people need to hear this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I remember the workshop, he did the story, everyone was amazing. Everyone spoke about it after and we invited him, we invited him here and we said, I don't know how you're even going to capture 10% of what you did but give it your best shot. And then he went and made it five times better as well somehow. So we actually split this into two because we loved so much. We couldn't stop. We know that it's good to keep them short-ish. But uh, so this is part one and we hope you really enjoy Tailspin Round as much as we do. Here we go. Well, I'm very, very excited to be able to announce our guest for today, uh, Tal Spinrad. Tal and I have had a awesome, awesome journey together over the last few years. Um, I was first introduced to his beautiful family um, when I came on board as a support worker um, with his youngest son, Ruby. Um, and, you know, my relationship with Ruby really grew 
Um, and as that grew, I really began to, to get closer with the rest of the family. And, and that's when Tal and I's friendship um, and relationship really began to expand and to grow. Um, and what started as, you know, just a couple of people who found each other, you know, a bit quirky and a bit funny has really turned into a, a beautiful friendship and a mentorship. Uh, Tal has helped me a lot with my understanding of the complexity um, of the special needs community and has been a mentor for me with care now and understanding how to address uh, different perspectives and perceptions um, of inclusion within the special needs community. Um, Tal has three lovely, lovely kids, Ruby, Gabby, and Ellie, and a beautiful wife, Marlo. And I'm very, very excited to have him on board today. Uh, he has some amazing and incredibly unique insights, and it is our absolute privilege. So I just wanted to give a starter, a bit of an introduction um, about how you sort of feel regarding your place in the special needs community um, and your role you see for yourself. It's, uh, thank, you, thank you for your very generous introduction. Uh, I just want to echo that uh, finding one of, the, one of the incredible challenges for, for uh, families that uh, have kids on the spectrum or have kids with special needs or disabilities, all of the above. Uh, one of the one of the really really difficult challenges is especially trying to find that initial uh, outside caregiver, that support person, and part of it's letting go. Part of it is uh, being able to trust someone that, on a real profound level, at least initially, you really don't know, and you're going so much on on gut intuitive instinct and uh, either fortunately or unfortunately if you're someone like myself who is on the spectrum you've been taught to not really trust that gut level instinct because it is at a, a distance from what the neurotypical world sees as what reality is so it's tough to trust yourself in such an important thing uh, and I don't know whether to uh, credit some sort of in, in incredible intuitive genius on my part or just some dumb luck that, that Jordan was the first one that we really got in to, to help us out at home because it has been absolutely far beyond uh, anything that I would imagine in terms of of trusting someone with my children, not only Ruby, but my two daughters as well. And more than that, just how much of a perilous turning point that that moment is for each and every family. Tell, I'm also so excited to have you here and to see your face on the screen. Um, what, what you just said about um, trusting your gut and or luck, I think, like so many things that we talk about is actually the same for all parents, all all of us. And, you know, when you first become a parent, you also don't know whether you should trust your gut um, because your gut as a parent is new. Um, and so I think, that, you know, one of the interesting things about gut that I've been talking to my daughter about who is on the spectrum and possibly my one of my other children it's looking like. Um, I've been talking to her about her gut and, and knowing how to feel because I'm sure your gut is equally useful, 
but perhaps it just works in a different way. So it's so interesting to, to, to think about the concept of whether we trust our guts or not for these huge decisions about how we look after our kids. Uh, yeah, it's, and, and just a, a caveat with, with everything that I'm going to say during this, this dialogue, that if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. And there are things that I will say anecdotally about my experience and my experience as a parent that will be very, um, very appropriate with other families and will be somewhat universal to the experience, but they'll be slightly different. It's a paradox about none of us are a singularity, but all of us are unique. Uh, so I, I would just like to really um, uh, to pick up where, where I left off is that how perilous that moment is because if Jordan would have been a jerk or if Jordan, no matter what other people say, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, the, that, that if Jordan would have been a jerk or if Jordan would have been non-trustworthy, and when I mean non-trustworthy, I mean doing okay with Ruby. But at the same time, if there was a bump in the road, since he wants the job, you may not have mentioned that bump in the road. He always was honest with me, which built up that trust. If that wasn't there, that would have had a domino effect for years after with anyone else that I would have tried to invite in to be a support worker. Now, the added plus with all this is that Jordan actually from, let's just say, either because of or wasn't dissuaded from his interactions with our family, Jordan has created a wonderful Care Now community, which the same thing has filtered down and had a ripple effect, you know, you know, throughout the community. I cannot, uh, I, I absolutely positively cannot emphasize enough how much that trust, and uh, some people might say a leap of, a leap of faith, but it's actually a leap of action uh, that we build stuff on. And that's exactly why when I met Jordan and when I heard about what he was doing, I had exactly the same response and I felt very determined that we can share what he's doing and what he's doing for other families and how he's doing it more broadly because there are so many families for whom, you know, finding care is, you know, in many cases become... um, at least the mind, the concept of it impossible because of those things that you described. You find the wrong person, you lose trust. You're not sure then how to select again. There's so much that can go wrong. And I agree with you. I mean, I think maybe actually it was actually some amazing luck that you got Jordan first off because I can I could spend a long time talking about how long it's taken me to find the right people. And I have along the way found some fantastic ones. And over the years now I know what to look for, but certainly at the beginning, so um, hazardous, I think, from, a, from an emotional perspective. And I agree. I mean, I think that's why I'm so thrilled that Jordan in this conversation and that he's connecting me and our listeners with someone like you. So it's really remarkable what he's been able to do. So I really, <laughs> I really appreciate that, guys. That's very, very nice uh, and kind words uh, from you guys. But I think you know, I definitely, um, from my perspective, I mean, it was really in Tal's case or the case of Tal's family that positive experience for me. You know, it could have been the exact same um, if I wasn't in such an environment that was so trustworthy and and honest and respectful. And I think back, I mean, just as, as a personal experience, when I first started working with Ruby. I had only volunteer experience. 
I'd been part of some awesome volunteer communities, but that was really my first step into testing out what it was like, you know, to really put special needs community a bit more centrally in my life. And I was really fortunate that when I started as a support worker, uh, I worked with three families who, you know, to this day, I still have an incredible relationship um, with the individuals I was supporting and friendships with them, um, but also great, great relationships with, with the families. And I think for me, I mean, if I had come in and felt uncomfortable or not supported, I mean, that could have been the end of my journey. Um, and my life would be drastically different to where it is today. I mean, now disability is the absolute most central thing in my life. And I'm so, so grateful. Um, it's changed my life for the better more than anything I've ever done. But that's why the importance of relationship, um, the supportive relationship between the individual you're supporting, support work of the family is, is paramount. There's so much value between that. And, and that's also why we have, you know, even within Care Now, we have a structure of having someone who works on the dialogue between families so that it's not just a support worker in the family, but someone they're trying to, to maintain that uh, healthy dialogue and relationship because it doesn't come that naturally to everyone and doesn't come so easily. And I'm so fortunate that the families that I personally interacted with at the start of my journey were just naturally the most amazing people. Um, but it can be tough to have that dialogue. And I think that you know, having someone there to, to help that, you know, it can really make or break families' experiences and support workers' experience when the relationship becomes either deleterious or just, just not, not great communication. Where I began with what my work with Takes a Village was trying to find helpers because while I want to provide support to parents in many ways, the number one thing is extra hands, you know, more people on board who, who can come into your home and that you can trust and that, that they can, your children can trust and that everyone just shares the pressure a little bit. And um, initially I, the, the people that I found who were capable of caring tended to be young people who were either studying something like physio or OT or one of those subjects that their personality had drawn them to that kind of work. But when I met Jordan and I realised um, and maybe a lot of the people working for you have that as well. There's also this personal characteristic, which is really has to be included in that package of the type of people that can come into our homes. And even my nanny who works with us now, her brother's autistic, which is why it, you know, we initially agreed to sort of try, but we've said even yesterday, it needs to be like a family member. This type of employment is not you cannot treat each other like an employer and an employee. It just doesn't work. And so that's an extra level of, you know, complexity to find the right person. But when you do, an understanding that it needs to be that is actually the key to then moving forward and actually being able to genuinely be supported and understood. This is just a really nice entrance to one of the, one of the things that's kind of my uh, pounding point uh, about changing, uh, one of the things for changing culture about that it's it's finally we've gotten through in a lot of the communities about inclusion, about inclusion this, inclusion that, you know, inclusion is like kissing babies sometimes. Even though people really, they they honestly sometimes don't know what that entails, but they like the sound of the word. And if they have the word on their letterhead, it somehow makes their community more palatable in the in the progressive in whatever progressive movement is the flavor of the day, but what I'd like to put in front of that word inclusion is reciprocal inclusion, and basically what that means is in in the case of what we're talking about here is that there's so much so much out there, rightfully so, in a very valid way, and there's no way you can overstate it 
that how much Jordan has brought to our family and how much a good carer and a good support system brings and enriches the lives of the families in, in countless ways. The reciprocal part about that is those families enrich the support workers. That, that this is, it's a, it's a, that all of this, these interactions dovetail with each other and they're all reciprocal. That uh, if I go and talk to a, a, a day school, a Jewish day school, and work with them in terms of inclusion and work with them with classroom management and get them to enhance how the classroom is for the kids that are on the spectrum within their school, that same, those same strategies and that same mindset enhances the situation for the neurotypical kids in the classroom as well. That it's not a question of just how do we, how are we inclusive that we can welcome these people that have special needs in. It's how do we incorporate their strengths, help them with the things that they need help with, and have the communities enriched by their presence within it. And 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 that's and that's a something that either it's good that we're on our way there, but we still have a long way to go. Totally, I totally agree, and that's something that I think about a lot when it comes to inclusion. And I think we might have mentioned it before. Um, really, like a, a really basic thing that people think about um, when it comes to inclusion is okay. Let's let's bring them in. Let's let's focus on how they're similar to us. And we will just, you know, make it work and put the puzzle together so that they fit in our system. And I think that that's not what inclusion is. Um, I think inclusion is all about outwards expression, not not inwards. And it's extending your system. And it's, it's acknowledging that there are differences, but seeing differences as positives because differences are then learning opportunities. People aren't thinking about things the same way, enjoying the same things. And learning from each other is, you know, the absolute best way to actually see inclusion because inclusion is about expansion not about bringing others in to what already exists we've been talking about that in different ways a little bit jordan already and i think we all agree that uh, in order for people to be open-minded about that they there is a level of education that's required so a level of um providing details that people can compare to their own lives in order that they can understand the the subtleties of those differences because in many cases they are quite subtle they're certainly um, in many cases not visible to the naked eye which we've talked about a lot and which is why we call these hidden challenges because you can't see them when that person walks into the room but Tal my first encounter with you was when Jordan had invited you to a training session to talk to his a group of carers and what I think you started quite early on. I can't remember. I was just so like starstruck from the beginning. I can't remember the order of things. But one of the things that you did was describe what it's like from your perspective, knowing that it's different for everyone, but from your perspective, you know, what it's like living on the autism spectrum. And for me, that was just such, I was so grateful for that information. I felt so um, inspired that we share that sort of story with others, because that's a real key to people taking that step to starting to really deeply, genuinely, you know, include invert internally and externally, or however you want to describe it, because you have to have the understanding in order that you've got the level of empathy and, um, um, and, and sort of human connection. Could you, as much as you remember, Tal, are you able to kind of retell that story about um, just that personal description that 
almost made me cry because I, it's, an, it's an insight that I, my daughter can't give me at the moment because she doesn't have the language yet to describe herself. Or hopefully one day she will. But what you gave me was almost, you know, a gift that helped me understand her more deeply. Thank you. That was very, a very generous description of, of, of me talking. You know, I know there are many times that, you know, there are many times that, 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 that I'm speaking that people just break out and start crying and it's kind of a toss up whether it's like they're overwhelmed with positive emotion or that the torture turns into a hostage situation. Uh, the, um, listen, the very, the, the very, the, the very short, <laughs> the very me, talk, this is me talking and me as a Jew talking. So the very short version of this is, is I was, um, until I was seven, eight years old, I was nonverbal. And, and as, as, as the story goes, like I tell people now, any friends that I have, uh, that I was nonverbal for the set first seven, eight years of my life. They could get this far away look in their eyes and they go, Oh, those were the days. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, I never, I was never cognitively aware I was nonverbal. Uh, I was very, very, very lucky in the sense that I was raised by my grandparents and they were, you know, this was a long time ago. I mean, last century. It was so long ago. And I, and, you know, so none of this, you know, I, they, I was just very quiet. I was odd. You know, I was the odd, I was the odd kid, but, you know, when you're running around with a bunch of Jews, it's like, you know, everyone's an odd kid. And, uh, you know, I had this internal uh, dialogue going inside my head. So it never really, you know, really fully occurred to me that I was, um, that I was nonverbal. However, there was a great sense of, of isolation. And my earliest memories is a incredible fear of not being able to make myself understood the the frustration and the terror of of feeling if looking back on it i would call it a, a feeling of being a singularity of being completely unable to articulate in any way truly what i wanted to say or how i felt or that no one would understand me now i was lucky that my grandparents understood me for whatever reason they understood me and they created a in hebrew a sukkah a a shelter a sanctuary for me where i for the only place and the only time in my life that i felt um that i did not need to explain myself that I was as is accepted. I did not have to change. I did not have to improve. And one thing, just to jump ahead, what I tell people now is that I will speak for each and every person that is on the spectrum. We do not want to be fixed by you. We do not want to be cured. We do not want to be adjusted. We want to be accepted. And even if you do not completely understand us, or our condition, because we're not our condition, it's just an articulation of a part of who we are, that you can, you can accept us without completely understanding. Now, being lucky that I have spent 
almost my entire life with other than my grandparents uh, in 24 hours, seven days a week, both sleeping and waking in a total uh, immense uh, push to translate, both translating stimulus that comes in because I translate and process things differently than the neurotypical world is not worse or not better, just differently. And the entire physical human world is set up for people with, uh, that are neurotypical to process stimuli, right? Coming in, I've got to translate things like, does this make sense? Does that make sense? Why does that light make a buzzing sound? And why can't anyone hear that? It's driving me crazy. All this type of stuff. I know it's a short drive, but it's driving me crazy. And, and at the same token, when I'm trying to put out there, when I'm trying to say something, it, it is always my fear that I will be misunderstood. And a lot of times I am misunderstood. I might think that, um, that I've done, that I've, I've been very nice about something and people will misconstrue that just because the processing is, is completely different. And to be fair about it, I think, I think, Anna, yeah, I think you're completely right that this is, this is kind of a, a somewhat physically, not invisible difference, physically invisible difference. Like I may, I may look, uh, neurotypical. I can pass in certain ways, but I really believe because it used to be a running joke that I would, you know, for for decades, for decades, I would walk into a bar. I would walk. I know it sounds like the beginning of a joke. I would walk into a bar with, believe it or not, a priest and a pat. No, I would walk into a bar and and or I work into a restaurant and in a room, and I'd sit down and I wouldn't say anything. But people would move away from me. They would vacate the area, and I'm convinced that there is a that since we're basically made up of water and electrical charges, that people that are on the spectrum have a slightly different electrical charge. That people around them can feel it. They, they not consciously, you know, but they can feel a little discomfort from being around and since that discomfort is not named and since there's no dialogue about the discomfort and all they feel is a discomfort, they don't fight through the discomfort in order to, to, to get to know the, the wonderfulness, which is me, obviously. No, the. Tal, have you watched the comedian called Hannah Gadsby? So she, I mean, she's hilarious. I've talked about her a lot. She's she's a brilliant advocate for the, the, this very message that you're saying. She's 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 happy to share and explain what life is like um, living on the spectrum and give some examples that are helpful. But he, she also says, well, this is just who I am, and I'm, I don't actually. There's no need for me to change. I'm just telling you this, and because I. Um, and she's hilarious. She, I mean, like all comedians, she uses everything in her life as content for comedy. But one, she does say one funny bit in her in her um, show called Douglas, where she says, "Many people on the spectrum don't make the best first impression," which I loved because it was for that very same message that she says, "You know, sometimes yeah, the first impression might not be the one that gets you. I don't know the the great response, but if people can build up their willingness and openness, that first impression sometimes." 
many times don't tell you the whole story. And if you can have a little bit more patience, maybe to, to tolerate that uncomfortable vibration or that uncomfortable gut feeling to wait to find out about the amazing person that's there. I thought that was a really sort of funny and wonderful way of describing that 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 thing that you just talked about, about when you walk in and you don't say anything, but there's a response. Um, I, I know what you're talking about. What I've noticed with my daughter is how acutely aware she is of that. So she'll walk around and she spots people who are different in one way or another from afar. It's like she's got a radar. And even before she knew about her own condition, she would say, oh, that person's autistic or that person as a six-year-old. Um, so I do think that she had a very, very heightened sense of that understanding, which I think is a form of genius because she's actually got this very, very sophisticated ability to interpret people around her without words, without, you know, it, it may very well be what you describe about a feeling of vibration. Yeah, exactly. And, and listen, the combination of things, one, you know, this whole idea about about being unique and somewhat of a singularity, uh, about about how translating and, not, and people not fully understanding and not being understood, you know, that's everyone. And whether you're on the spectrum or not, it's just that we are incredibly painfully aware of it. And, and also, we don't... We, <laughs> I know this is very a very biased way to put it, but we're very honest about our relationship and about how we see things. So, in other words, how you know how 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 people for people for neurotypical people to work in the world to interact in the world, you've got to have a certain level of of denial that 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 you can completely understand what someone else is saying. Cause you don't, you know, it's, 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 it's an old, it's, it's an, um, it's an old way that if it, one of the very well-meaning people who it's like, if God forbid you, you know, you lose a, a relative, a relative passes on and they come to you and they want to be comforting. And they say, I know how you feel because well, you don't, you don't. Not exactly, because everyone is unique in their own stuff. Now, we don't play, I don't want to say play that game because I trivialized it, but we have a real inhibitation of building up that psychological infrastructure that will allow us to fake that sort of thing. So, and, and your daughter, if your daughter's at your daughter, we, from a very early age, we have to work in order to transcend the distance we have between ourselves and even people who are very close to us. So we are constantly analyzing, we're constantly listening to what people are saying and anal doing, doing, for lack of better term, doing a text study on every moment that we live so we can understand what's going on. And it is exhausting, which is one of the reasons why uh, 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 I don't feel that people on the spectrum are antisocial. I think that we need to withdraw from social interactions because we're just getting too fatigued and burnt out. Yes, Jordan. 
I that's so, so interesting, Tal, um, just as a, such a unique insight um, into, you know, how you personally feel about these interactions. Going back to what you were speaking about earlier, about your concept of the sukkah, because um, I think that's such an interesting, you know, concept that I'd love for you to explain further. But I mean, that feeling of safety and security in such a pure way that you really feel like there are, there's nothing you have to do and nothing you have to prove. Um, and it might be, you know, uh, a physical space is, you know, what a sukkah creates. But I feel like that dynamic exists in mental states and within relationships. Um, could you talk a little bit about that safe place for you, that sukkah that was created by your grandparents? And then also if there have been times um, that you've been able to create, you know, your own sukkah uh, in your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, I'm not sure whether, uh, you know, I... I told the story when I was at, you know, at your, at your, at care now uh, for that PD. But when I was growing up, um, my very earliest memories from three, four, five years old, my, you know, I was brought up by my grandparents. And when, when my, my grandpa, my grandpa, who was, well, basically was the uh, treasurer of New York City during the 40s and 50s. And stuff, and he would go off to work. And when he went off to work, I'd give him a big hug, and and you know, I, I'd feel his cheek on my cheek, and it'd be clean shaven, and there'd be like you know, reek of aqua velva, you know, aftershave and, and and stuff like that. And he went off to work, and when he came back from work later, late you know, later in the afternoon, he he really was musky. You know, because he was a CPA, you know, and heightened CPA, but he still was like, he sweat during his job. And he'd come back and his cheek was, was you know, he was a Jewy guy. So if he didn't shave during the day or he's like, if he had, you know, if he didn't trim his facial hairs and his ear hairs, he would start to look like a Dr. Seuss character with hair sticking out his side and all, you know, everything like that. And I would feel, and that to this day, is what I feel uh, when I'm scared and stuff. I feel that I smell that musky smell, and I feel and hear his beard on my on my cheek. Right, and we would have dinner and we'd sit down together, and then he would go into the into his bedroom and slip into something more comfortable. Back when that actually was slipping into something more comfortable, right? And, and while he was doing that, I would go and I would take this wooden, big wooden bridge table. And I must have had help from my grandma because I was too small to do it on my own to carry it. But I'd get the bridge table and I'd open one leg, open the next leg, and the third leg and the fourth leg and set it up. And then I'd take his chair and put it right at the same place, at the same side of the table that I always did. And then I take one of those packs of bicycle cars, you know, a red, because, you know, he was a, a lefty socialist. So, of course, it was a red, you know, pack of cards and stuff like that. And I put it on the table. Once that was set, he would come out of the bedroom and he would be dressed in, you know, his bathrobe, you know, a tank, you know, under, tank top undershirt, boxer shorts with um, his slippers and black socks, you know, with those little, with, you know, skinny, you know, skinny, hairy legs, you know, stuff like that. And, and he, he'd sit down at the table and I would sit down under the table and slowly, but surely all I would hear above my head was this 
slapping of cards like rain over my head that 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 would be that that was his playing solitaire with these cards and within that table that table that became my sukkah and and sukkah and a sukkah is is something that during a I want to say autumn because it's autumn in the northern hemisphere but springtime harvest festival in Israel a sukkah is a temporary structure that we that we build for one basically one week a year that we can rest within and and celebrate the harvest festival but for me this bridge table became my sukkah my sanctuary that all those fears all that isolation all that terror of not being able to be understood that moment of time that moment and place because it's a it's because in Judaism time and place merge and overlap and intertwine with each other that moment and place that became safe for me I did not have to do anything in that and within that table that that is where I first experienced there's a there's a, a Hebrew word called nevatim now nevatim is a Kabbalist, a mystical word that basically means the time, the space, the moments in between a seed and a plant. It's when something's not a seed and it's not the plant. It's a moment of nothingness, of perpetual becoming, where you're incredibly safe. And that's and that is where I've experienced it. And every moment of my life, I have spent in some way trying to allow or cultivate at least the possibility of those moments for members of the community that I interact with. And there, all those moments are different for everyone, but it's heartbreaking how many people never have that experience where they can just be who they are and they have no pressure to change or to improve themselves. Tal, that's such a beautiful story. You did tell that last time, but I mean, I could listen to it a thousand times. It's another, and I just, I feel like this happened all the time. I agree with you. It's really sad that a lot of people don't have access to their own version of that safe place. Because again, I completely understand that when you're living with autism and the need to kind of retreat and regroup, I have ADHD and I have a similar need you know, because I, I get exhausted by different things, but it's not, I know it's not the same, but I think all humans need that because all humans find life exhausting for different reasons. And again, you know, I, I don't mean to say that it's it's not harder, um, but I, I, it's another good example of where that sort of external inclusion where we can learn how to live better from each other. And that sort of story would help anyone to live better if they were able to identify that whatever it was for them, whatever practices it was for them, to be able to regroup and, and recover. And I, and I say that uh, particularly as a parent because as a parent living in the life that we're living, which is extremely intense, relentless, exhausting, on top of all the normal parenting stuff, it just takes so much emotional energy. I'd love for our, the parents of, our, of the children that we're um, talking about now, and, and especially if those parents also have a diagnosis of one form or another, to really be able to tap into how they might be able to find their own version of that regrouping and build it into their sort of daily routine um, so that they can give themselves that time as well. 
I, 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 I absolutely, absolutely agree. Uh, the, the, the term that I, that I, that I like to use is, is that we all, we all need, we all need the space, the time, uh, the blessing, because we don't, we shouldn't need the permission, but the blessing of those around us is self-regulate. We hope you love this first half of the interview with Tal. Look out for the second half in episode nine.